So the title of what we're going to talk about today uh, is David's Choices, and it's a two-part message. And I'm just aware that there's a lot of ground to cover. So there's two, verse, uh, two chapters in the Bible which we're going to look at, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12. So we're going to read through chapter 11 today. Um, if you get the chance, read through both of them, and uh, we will hopefully learn some things from what we're wanting to think about today. So just by way of introduction, I'm going to cover over the course of two messages uh, six different points in relation to this story, in relation to David, his position, his progression, and his pas- uh, sorry, passion. And then points four through to six, plotting, pleading, and Psalm 51. And today I'm going to cover those first three points, and I'm going to spend most time on the middle point. So let's just pray before we read God's Word, and uh, let's really seek His wisdom today. Father, we are so aware of the need to have You in our lives in order that we might hear what the Spirit would say, in order that we might live our lives in a way that is pleasing to You but also live our lives in a way that is helpful to us and to those who are round about us. And Father, we pray today that as we spend time in this story, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, that our spiritual eyes and ears would be open to hear what you would say to us. And Lord, this is such a, such a, a difficult story to even think about. And so, Father, we pray that as we grapple with what is in your word here in relation to this, that we would have eyes and ears that are open to hear what the Spirit would say. And Lord, we pray that anything that is man's thoughts would be forgotten, because Lord, we just want to hear what you would say to us today. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit lives within us, and that you give us the ability to really grapple and understand the things of God. And so we pray that our hearts would be open to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read uh, through uh, the passage first. And it's entitled in the NIV, my Bible that I'm using today, uh, David and Bathsheba. Verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And in brackets it says, she had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Job sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Job was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah didn't go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? 
And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and the Lord's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as the Lord, uh, as surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Job had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. Then, the men, uh, sorry, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot with arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from a wall? so that he died in Thebes. Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he had arrived, he told David everything Job had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Verse 24, then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Job, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press at the attack, uh, sorry, press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And you can understand why it displeased the Lord when you read that story. It's absolutely incredible. And uh, this is a story which involves a number of characters, warriors, a powerful and celebrated king, a charismatic personality, a prophet, which we'll come to next week, and also a woman. And as you read the text, we read that Bathsheba is the daughter of one of David's warriors. Bathsheba is also the wife of one of David's mighty men. And that's one of the things that astounds me about this story. These are the guys who were behind David. These were the guys who were backing him to the hilt, literally. These were the guys who went out to fight for David. And here is Bathsheba, stuck in the middle. And I find it an almost unbelievable abuse of power and of position. 
And David takes what isn't his, and there are consequences as we read on. You know, uh, I like to to try and kind of read up about Christmas just to take a a slight tangent uh, and read what other people think about the Christmas story. And as I was reading uh, through a book, it's uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by a man called Kenneth Bailey. He made this observation that Bathsheba is not actually named in the account in Matthew chapter 1 verse 6. It goes through the genealogy genealogy of Jesus. And it says in Matthew 1 that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And she's never referred to as David's wife by Scripture, the the writers of Scripture. And it's just an interesting observation for me. We'll come back to that uh, in just a little second. But I want to think about uh, these three areas for, for David. I want to think first about his position, how he positioned himself, and then there's a progression uh, of things which happened, and then there's passion is the last thing that I want to discuss. I'm going to spend most time on point number two. But point number one really is thinking about how we position ourselves in relation to other people and also in relation to God. It's very, very important, and we need to be so careful about how we position ourselves physically alongside other people. We need to make sure that we are not open to temptation and make sure that we're not open to accusation. And these things are very important, especially as as Christians. You know, we thought last week about what other people see when they look at us. Do they see people who are living godly lives or do they see people who are saying one thing and putting another thing into practice? And so there are three things I want to think about in relation to David. The first one is that he was skiving. Okay, he wasn't where he should have been. Verse 1 says, In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And my burning question is, why was David not out with the men? Why was he not at war with his troops? Was he unwell? Was he fatigued? What was the story? And the text doesn't really tell us why? But we know one thing, he wasn't where he should have been. And either way, that is a difficult place to be physically, emotionally, spiritually. When we're not where we should be, then we open ourselves up to danger. The second thing is that he was sleeping. It says in verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof. And there's an argument that says that it could have been the afternoon. He was having his siesta And rest is necessary for our bodies. We need rest. Sometimes we go through periods where we need more rest than others. And we, you know, that's an important thing. But we need to be aware of the times when we're maybe fatigued are times when we are vulnerable and open to temptation. The times where we think, oh man, I really need a rest. These can be dangerous times. And if we're not positioned right in relation to others, in relation to God, then the devil can come and tempt us. Point three in this is that he was shuffling on his roof. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And the inference from the Hebrew text is that he was aimlessly wandering about. You you can just kind of imagine him sort of kicking about on the roof, eh, with his hands in his pockets. Well, did robes have pockets in those days? I don't know. He's kind of like shuffling about. It's like, oh, 
maybe a bit bored, maybe I should have went out with the men. And then he's, he's wandering around, and then he sees somebody. And we'll come to that in just a little second. But the, the idea is that he's aimlessly wandering around on the roof. And it's interesting that the, the roof is mentioned twice, because it was from the roof that he saw what he shouldn't have saw. And what are the lessons that we can learn from this point? I think to be aware of our surroundings is important. Don't be in a place where you can be open to temptation or to accusation. And that place can be in an isolated room with a screen in front of your face. Be self-aware. Aware of the times in your life when you're tired, perhaps when you're bored, perhaps when you're frustrated, you're perhaps angry or restless or even unwell. These are the times when the enemy will seek to get in and to tempt you and get into your soul and get into your mind. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says this, and it's good advice. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You might think, I've got this Christianity mark sorted out. I'm okay. I'm above temptation. Well, guess what? None of us are. We need to be aware of those times in our lives when we're not as we should be. And then very specifically, in this situation, point three is to run. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says this, flee sexual immorality. Run. Run for your life. And the original language of the Greek here is very, very clear. It's very direct. It says, get out of there and get out of there fast. You see, David was not in the right place. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he opened himself to the wrong things. And in that, we find this progression it's interesting when we think about this, when we think about being tempted and, and all that that entails, the Bible tells us very clearly that there's always a way out. In this account, there was a progression of thought, there was a progression of action, and, but at any point in time, David could have opted out. He could have stopped the process. He could have said, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. But he didn't. He says, I'm going, to, I'm going to do, no, he didn't say I'm going to do this for the team. <laughs> he was doing this against his team. <laughs> and we can learn from this. We can learn from this account. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. How do we do this? Do we do this in our own strength? Do we do this by making New Year's resolutions and saying, I'm not going to do that again? It doesn't work. We do this because we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God living inside us who gives us the ability to resist temptation. And as I think about where we are as a church just now, and thinking about building church, and thinking about picking up one of these books, and beginning to think about praying and building, and filling up the chairs uh, with people who don't know Jesus yet, that they might know Him, as I think about that, I think about all the things that can get in the way of that, 
And we, in our fallenness, can get in the way of that. And I, I hope that we can learn from this account how to avoid getting ourselves into that place. You see, the first thing here is seeing. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Do you know, I think temptation, temptation is like rain falling. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Last October, when I was on sabbatical, I went for a drive into the country. The sun had come out. It was a glorious day. But on the way up, I was going up uh, on the road towards Lochern, and you'll know that there's a river runs down the left-hand side of the road, and the river had burst its banks. It was incredible to see, and I, I wish I'd taken a photograph of it. Um, but that river burst its banks because of many little drops of rain. And I think in this moment when David sees Bathsheba, it's like a drop of rain on the hand. Do you know that way where you say, was that rain I felt? Do you, do you know that way? It's like, and you go, and then you feel it in your hand, you go, ah, it is. It's just about to start raining. That's what this moment is like. It's like, am I being tempted here? Yeah. Yeah, I'm being tempted. And that's the moment where he should have got his umbrella up, where he should have done a Mary Poppins and get out of there. And why is this so important? Because, um, well, I remember actually when I worked in Mitsubishi, uh, there's a guy who we had a, a, you know, our benches here, a workbench with all our kit and caboodle, all our tools and whatnot, equipment. And there was another guy behind me. And uh, he, he was a bit of a character. And I remember saying to him that the eye is the window of the soul. And it's one of those things that stuck with him. In fact, next time I see him, I'm going to ask him if he remembers it. But it's based on the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6, 22. And really, Jesus is talking about being tempted away by, by money, by money becoming like a God, money becoming personified. And so he's drawn the distinction between serving God and serving money. But the principle applies here as well. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And when it says if your eyes are good, if you look at the original language, it's saying here, if your eyes are single, if you're focused, looking at one thing, and what he's talking about is looking at God and serving God and following God and not being distracted by money and riches and wealth. There's a singleness of purpose. And that's what that word means. If your eyes are good, if they're single, if they're focused, if they're focused on God, then your whole body will be full of light. Whatever you focus on is what will fill you. And the eye that, listen to this, the eye is part of the central nervous system. It's a direct extension of the brain. And two-thirds of the cortex are dedicated exclu exclusively to the eye. And somebody said uh, that 85% of a person's total knowledge comes through the eyes. Don't underestimate the power of the eyes. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, uh, verse 6, it goes all the way back to Genesis. When the woman, what? Saw the fruit of the tree, that it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, and it says that she took the fruit 
and she ate it. And Adam beside her. And we read that they fell, but it came in through the eye first and into the heart. Remember me talking about Bathsheba and how she was not named in Matthew chapter 1. She was not referred to as Bathsheba. She was not referred to as David's wife, nor as Solomon's mother, but as Uriah's wife. And that is who she was until all of this happened. And Kenneth Bailey says this, and it's an interesting slant on the story because we've thought about David and what he's seeing, and this puts a slightly different slant on it. No self-respecting woman in any culture would do such a thing. In a traditional Middle Eastern village, only powerful people have second and third floors to their homes. Such people can look down into their neighbors' homes, walled courtyards, and windows. The rest of the town cannot observe their private spaces. David's Jerusalem was small, 12 to 15 acres, and all of it crowded. Archaeologists in Jerusalem have found a large stone structure from the time of David that may be his palace. Regardless of whether the building discovered was the actual residence, the space between the palace and Bathsheba's house could hardly have been more than 20 feet. And Kenneth Bailey goes on to suggest that Bathsheba may have actually had a plan in all of this, but that's purely speculative because we're not told either way. But either way, there should have been nothing for David to see. When I'm away from the house, away on a trip, away at a conference or something like that, our door gets locked and the curtains get closed at night. That's what most people would do. Not make an exhibition that other people can see. Why was she bathing naked in full view of the palace? In a culture where modesty and dress is important, and it still is, it does seem a little odd. And talking about modesty, and I think this goes for men and women. Paul exhorts Timothy to teach along these lines. 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 to 10. And he's saying to his young learner, I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess, sorry, who profess to worship God. There's a lot we could take out of that. But for me, the important thing is that we dress modestly. It's a basic principle. It's a basic principle in the Bible. You see, there should have been nothing for David to see. Verse 2 of the chapter that we've been reading says that the woman was very beautiful. If you read the New King James Version, it says, the woman was very beautiful to behold. There are two words in there, not one. In the original Hebrew, there are two words. And the word means good and can be used in different ways depending on the context. But here it means abstract goodness, such as desirability, pleasantness, and beauty. She was very beautiful. She was desirable. 
And this same desirability is the word that, song, uh, that Solomon uses in Song of Songs. And he says in Song of Songs 4.10, How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than spice. The second word, she was beautiful to behold. The second word really is about the woman's appearance. She is beautiful, but the writer adds a specific phrase to look at. She was beautiful to look at. In other words, she was a bit of a stunner. She was a bit of a head turner. Caw, that Bathsheba, check her out. That's what he's saying. He's adding that specific word that we understand that she was somebody who men would desire. I wonder if she knew that and if she used that to her advantage. I'm not saying she did, but I wonder. I just wonder because that's what happens these days. And David goes from seeing to staring. Oh, I'm way back the wrong way. How did that happen? I must have pressed the wrong button. I was going back the way rather than forwards. There we go. Back up to date again. The woman was very beautiful. He didn't just notice the woman. He began to stare at the woman. And when seeing becomes staring, we're into a different ballgame. We're using other words like gazing, gaping, gawking. Are you getting the picture here? Ogling or leering. They're not very wholesome words, are they? Essentially, what's happening here is voyeurism, and it's a wee bit creepy. You know, I talked about that drop of rain. Is it raining? And you put your hand out and you go, aye, it's raining. Well, this is the moment where he's in no doubt that the rain's coming down. He's getting a bit soaked and getting a bit wet. And there's a basic principle that David knows that he is, he, he knows that he's stepping over a line here. Exodus 20 verse 17 says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Not only his neighbor's wife, but one of his mighty men's wives. One of the guys who backed him up to the hill, and here he is coveting his neighbor's wife. And it made me think about that song. You've probably heard it. Pardon the way that I stare. There's nothing else to compare. The sight of you leaves me weak. There are no words left to speak. But if you feel like I feel, please let me know that it's real. You're just so good to be true. I can't take my eyes off of you. <laughs> you know the song I'm talking about. And if I'm singing that song to my spouse, that's probably okay. And if I'm singing it to somebody else's spouse, that's a problem. We need to remember what Jesus taught on these issues. On the Sermon on the Mount, we read in Matthew chapter 5, David's already lost it by this point as far as Jesus is concerned. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's already happened. And we need to be aware of what the Bible teaches on this. Because in the culture, in the society in which we live, 
we seem to have lost all sense of any moral compass about these types of issues. And the world is talking about this stuff all the time. You switch on your TV, daytime TV, and this is what it's talking about. And this is what people are debating. You see, there's a parallel for us here. We can, we can look back and say, well, that was David and that was that situation. But we're maybe in a kind of different day here. Well, the, the problems are exactly the same because people haven't changed this story may be thousands of years old, but people haven't changed. You see, David saw an image. That image entered his body through the gate of the eye. His gate was wide open for anything to come in. A moving image that linked directly to his central nervous system, specifically the pleasure centers of his brain. And his heart began to increase heart rate his breathing became shallower, and he was aroused physically. And at that point, there's a release of testosterone in the body, and the body hormones change. The body chemistry changes. And here's the thing. Here's the point. The reason for me saying this is that what happens is totally natural. It's how the body is designed to function. God designed our bodies this way. But the problem is that modern technology has made what happened here accessible to all sorts of people, including our kids seeing things that they shouldn't see totally by accident before they should ever see it. And in most cases, when kids are asked about things like this, they say that that image, that first image, sticks in their brain because it makes an imprint. The problem is that there are always consequences. We always reap what we sow. And the internet and social media is being misused by boys and girls, women and men. And here's the thing. Let me be really direct here. Using pornography increases the production of feel-good chemicals in our brains such as adrenaline, endorphins, and serotonin. And this is what the experts say. Unfortunately, by overloading the brain with pleasure chemicals, porn reduces the body's own ability to produce and effectively release them under normal life circumstances. In other words, normal sexual relations don't cut it anymore. Something inside is not working right. And that's the problem with this stuff. And that's the problem when we let it get into our souls. When we allow ourselves to go to, too far down this process, then it has an effect on us. To come back to that verse from 1 Corinthians 6 that I quoted earlier, it starts off by saying, flee sexual immorality. It goes on to say this, and I think I begin to understand it now. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. That's what this is all about. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
We begin to damage our own bodies through these things. We damage our brain. We damage our ability to relate to our spouse normally and in a way that's wholesome. But David takes it a a step further, and the point's already up. He goes from seeing to staring to searching. Verse 3, And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You see, it's too late now. The floodwaters have begun to rise. We've kind of went from, is it raining, to, ah, it's definitely raining, to, look at that, mess. The flood is starting to arise. David has sent someone out to find out about her, and he makes inquiries. And there's no indication, actually, in the NIV it talks about the man. There's no indication in the original story that it was a man. It could have been a woman who came back to David as well. And then he takes it another step further. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. And my personal thinking is that he didn't send somebody right away. Just as I read and meditate on this text, it seems to me like there's a little gap, maybe of a few days between this happening and David sending out to get somebody uh, to fetch her back. And if this is the case, I'm left wondering what was going on in David's mind during that time replaying the little video of Bathsheba in his head, memories, feeding on those memories, and progressively the temptation getting stronger. You know, there's a basic principle in this. We reap what we sow. And whatever we feed will grow. Okay? If I stand side on, you'll see that what I feed grows. Okay? (laughs) It's a principle of life. And the same works with our minds. Whatever we feed our minds with will grow. And David was feeding on the wrong type of stuff here. And therefore, what came out of all of this was something which was not helpful. And if we can learn anything from this, it would be, firstly, to watch your eyes. You know, Sarah used to sing this wee song when she was wee. Uh, Watch your eyes, watch your eyes, what they see. Have you heard that song? Watch your eyes, watch your eyes, what they see. There's a father up above looking down in tender love. Watch your eyes, watch your eyes, what they see. It's really, really simple, isn't it? You know, I said last week about the basic things about Christianity in order to live a healthy Christian life are quite simple in actual fact. This is really, really simple in practice, uh, in theory, sorry. It's really simple in theory. Watch your eyes, watch your eyes, what they see. And we can learn that and know exactly what that means as children, and yet it's so difficult to put into practice as we get older. The eye is the window of the soul. Guard your eye. Job even said he made a covenant with his eye not to look lustfully on a girl. If there's a second lesson that we can learn, it is this, that accountability is key. So many sins are out in the open, even in church life, let me say, Greed is often on show, and I'm not criticizing anybody in particular. Please understand. Anger can be on show. Gluttony can be on show. Selfishness can be on show. All sorts of sins can be out in the open, and sometimes we go, ah, it's just, it's just who they are. No, it's not good enough. But the problem with this type of sin is that it tries to stay under the radar. And I say particularly in church life. As I look at our society, 
it's seeming to me that it doesn't matter all that much anymore. But certainly in the church, we try to keep it all under the radar. If you are married, keep close accounts with your spouse, and that works both ways. If you're not married, find somebody that you can really, really trust. And be really careful because it's not the first time where somebody felt that they were sharing something in confidence and it came back to bite them. Last point, and I'm nearly finished, honest, his passion. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. This is the point that I was talking about where the river has burst its banks. That river that I saw last October, it was everywhere. It burst its banks, it was out of control. It had come out from the normal boundaries of the river. And the reference in brackets, if you look at your Bible, she had purified herself from her uncleanness, is a very clear statement by the writer that Bathsheba was certainly not pregnant when she met David in this encounter. It's a very clear reference. The writer is saying, there's no way she could have been pregnant, by the way. This baby is David's. When we think about relationships, she went back home. What would she have said to Uriah had things went differently? Would she have lived out a lie? Relationships get affected by this type of stuff. And as I look at society and how society has affected the church, I see the damage done to relationships, particularly families, and it's heartbreaking when it's the kids that get affected through unfaithfulness and separation and divorce. This is not how God intended things to be. It's not His plan, not what He intended it to be. And relationships are so important. They can be fragile. They need to be looked after. They need to be tended to. They need to be cared for. People matter to God, and therefore people should matter to us. What are the results? The encounter, the results of this encounter are obvious. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Conceiving and bringing into the world a tiny little person, a living being. And a little tiny being coming into the world shouldn't be a dilemma, but a joy. You see, the third thing here is that we reap what we sow. In every area of life, and in this very specific example, we reap what we sow. And that principle holds true every time. And so if we can learn anything from this, I would say this, that boundaries are important. God has given us very clear, a, a very clear pattern of how we should live our lives there are or should be boundaries in all areas of life. And these boundaries are for our own protection and the protection of others. And we do well to take note of boundaries. You will know when your space has been invaded, don't you? When somebody even steps too close to you, you're like, whoa, back off. You're in my bubble. Just to give you one example. But there are lots of ways that we have boundaries in our lives, things which we're allowed to say to each other and not allowed to say to each other, things that just kind of keep us at a, a proper distance from each other. 
And if we want to learn more about that, the Bible is full about that. In fact, Henry Cloud, uh, who was associated with Willow Creek Church, he's actually written books on boundaries, which are really, really helpful. But read through the letters to the churches and you'll, you'll find it. The second thing is that sin hardens our hearts. You know, there are two options here. There are two options when we sin as well. The first is resistance. It's, you know, it's about saying, actually, what I'm doing isn't really a sin. It's like it's okay. And, oh, maybe I deserve it because I've had a really hard time. I've been out to war. I've been doing all this stuff. And we'll just let the men go out. I need a wee rest. I'm just going to have a wee lie dead on my sofa in the afternoon. Have a wee siesta. You know, it's looking at Bathsheba. It's okay. I, I kind of deserve a wee, a wee bit of eye candy. It's okay. No, it's not. David, if he takes that approach, has totally deceived himself. Did he internally justify his own actions? Did he feel that he deserved a wee treat? If he did, then that's a dangerous place to be. And the problem is that it leads to hardening of the heart. Because once we've done that, once it becomes less of a problem the second time, and once we get to that level, what are we going to take on next? And we read that as we go on in the story one last point, and I'm almost finished. One last sentence. The second and preferred approach in all of this is repentance. It's about getting alongside God and saying, actually, your way is right, and I've got this wrong. And it's about taking a, a path of humility and coming before God and saying, I have messed this up. Please come and forgive me. And it's not just about confession. It's about recognizing the need to turn around and go a different way. Run if you need to. When we confess, what we're essentially saying is that God's judgment about the situation is right and ours is wrong. But we need to remember this, and it's so important. When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we get it wrong sometimes. But we need to remember that we can come before a God who has died, Jesus has died on that cross, in order that our sins might be forgiven, that we might know what it is to live freely and lightly. And so if we've messed up in the past, it's not about staying there and allow ourselves to be heaped up with guilt and accusation, whether it's internal or we feel it's coming from others. We come before God and we say, you are right here and I'm wrong. Please forgive me and help me to move on. And with that, we finish. I pray that as we look through this story and as we continue on in this story next week, that we begin to understand that God is a God who is interested in every area of our lives, every aspect. But that even when we mess up, God can forgive us. So let's just pray as the musicians come up and just let's try and seal this word into our hearts today. Father, we just thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for this story. Lord, it's just incredible that this story should actually be recorded in the Bible to start with because it's such a, a massive, massive mistake of David's. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to learn from this and to take out of it from, take from it everything that we can learn in order to live our lives in a way that pleases you. 
So, Father, we just pray that you'd help us to take this word and even to meditate upon it this week uh, and just to read through the verses and just think about them and pray over them. And, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and give us a real clarity in our thinking, a real clarity in the things which we may be need to come before you with. Lord, we do this because we want to be serious about uh, building your kingdom here. And so, Lord, as, as we think about ourselves as living stones, we want to be uh, just in that right place before you, to be used by you and to be positioned by you into areas where we can be fruitful and serve you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.